Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Tia Newcomer about her incredible career and her amazing approach to onboarding as the new CEO of Caring Bridge. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I have Tia Newcomer. I've known her for almost a decade. She's now the CEO of Caring Bridge. If you've had a sick loved one, uh, maybe you've participated in Caring Bridge. It's a beautiful, mission-driven organization. And Tia is an extraordinary individual, an extraordinary leader. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Tia Newcomer, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. You've had a lot of experience uh, uh, in executive roles, ranging from Hewlett-Packard, Frito-Lay, Clorox, Revlon. Uh, we got to know each other when you were at Cord Blood Registry, uh, and then you were the chief commercial officer at Generate Life Sciences. I mean, you have done a lot. How did you get to where you are? How does somebody get to be like you? It's you know, a combination of hard work, leaps of faith, not only by myself, but leaps of faith by leaders that saw something in me that maybe I didn't see, and they took chances. And so it really taught me early on that not only were people taking chances on me to grow my career, but I could take those same chances with where I wanted to go. Tell us a little bit about CaringBridge. For those who don't know about CaringBridge, let's start there. Absolutely. Um, you know, CaringBridge is this, like you say, a nonprofit, mission-driven organization. I will tell you, 25 years ago, we're coming up on our 25th anniversary, our founder, Sana Mary. You know, a woman of STEM, a woman entrepreneur, phenomenal woman. 25 years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was 13. She was in her basement coding this platform, the first true social platform. I have to point it out because she's a visionary and she's an inspiration in the fact that we're still here. Her friend, her very good friend, who has had a very big network of people, had a premature baby that was in the NICU and pretty close to, to dying and actually eventually did die. Sana was given the tremendous task of keeping loved ones and her incredible network informed of what was going on. She, on her third call, each one lasting 45 minutes, each one she was crying, the other people were crying. She was repeating the same story. She realized the, the tremendous burden, but also just the need to communicate quickly and share across multiple people when people were, and, and also rally help for people as they were going through any kind of health journey. So she went down in her basement and coded Caring Bridge. Of course, everyone wants to know what's going on. You want your family and friends to be connected to the experience, to be able to share in the experience. Uh, but the it, it's really about communication, right? 100%. And it's it's mobilizing that power of your community that's always around you. And, you know, there can be the tight circle and there can be the extended circle, but your community, really, it's about mobilizing that power of that community to support not only your healing, but that communication. And, and it's proven when you have support around you as a caregiver and or a patient, your outcomes are quicker 
and they're better. Um, and we see people using it for things as I'll, I'll call it less serious. You know, I, I'm going in and having knee surgery all the way to those very long journeys of Alzheimer's or dementia and the and the family and caregivers that are taking care of their, their loved ones in that capacity. Here you are. So you're coming into an organization that's been uh, in existence for uh, going on three decades, right? And, and like all organizations, no matter how beautiful and perfect the mission is, organizations have challenges. Talk about that challenge of taking over as the leader of this profoundly important organization. It was humbling. It was an honor. And it's exciting because there's a lot of, of opportunity. But taking a step back, you know, I, the board who ran the interview process was very good about focusing on this vision and mission-driven culture and organization, and also laying out the fact that, one, I'm the third CEO over 25 years. So founder went last seven years to a great CEO that turned around our revenue. So from a growth turnaround. And then now we're at a pivotal moment where we need to be more relevant with the Facebooks and the, you know, you think about all of the different social media platforms out there that are taking off and changing daily. Combine that with this tremendous past two years of a pandemic where healthcare and the way that we deliver healthcare and support people going through health journeys has changed significantly, really leapfrogged from a technology standpoint, virtual. It's a it's an, a pivotal moment to really take and fulfill that vision. So the careful balance for coming in is respecting the legacy while painting a vision of what could be uh, and turning what I'll call a nonprofit. Sometimes there can be a nonprofit complacency. You know, we have a great vision, but not focused on growth. And so I think the power is combining nonprofit vision and mission with a growth mindset. How do you get to know everybody so fast? Or, or is it possible to get to know everybody uh, in 100 days? Yeah, well, I learned from the best. I mean, Bruce, you came in, what, 10 years ago, and I learned you can do two things. And, and because this is a smaller organization, I have 20 board members and I have 50 people that work for us in the organization. And so what I did is I literally knew those first 30 days were my most valuable from a, my calendar wasn't going to be very full, right? I'm coming on board and I'm, I'm learning. And so I went into what I'll call listening mode, scheduled listening tours. And what that looked like is I scheduled 30 to 45 minutes with everyone in the organization and every one of my board members. So it was over you know, 70, 80 hours of conversation. And I purposely asked five questions and they were the same questions so that I could then at the end, I took notes. I have actually an 80 page Word document. I took notes and you know, cut and pasted each of those five questions, took notes underneath, and then went back through and consolidated three themes that then could help the organization and the board see, okay, here's the themes I'm hearing. This isn't, this isn't my observation. This is what I heard directly from our people and the board of the opportunities and challenges that we're currently facing. So that was very powerful, not only in maintaining the culture and bringing people along, but getting to know people because I would spend the first 10, 15 minutes just saying, hey, tell me about you. What makes you you? 
um, and do you have a dog? That connection too is pretty important to know what people are in their non-work lives. Because, And also, by the way, those are blending, right? Quite significantly, especially during this pandemic. Think about this as a dizzying experience you led. So often people say, oh, people are a number one asset, but they don't live it. They don't make it real. Not only are you sending a powerful message, but I'm guessing also nobody else has in, in a two-week period had those conversations with all 50 people. So you go from being the brand new person, uh, you go within a couple of weeks to being the person who has most recently had the most comprehensive intake of employee opinion data uh, of anyone else in the world in a matter of weeks sends a powerful message. It's an incredible learning experience and download. And it's also an incredible source of credibility. And um, uh, I don't know if the five questions are top secret, Tia, or if you're willing to share them. No, it's a great, it's a great ask. And I, I actually, I read a book, several books on onboarding. I knew this was a really unique time in my career and also knew that um, I did a ton of work on an onboarding plan, which we can talk about next. But those five questions came to me and I, I mixed a couple that I had read in a couple of books. Five questions. One, what are the biggest challenges the organization is facing or will in the near future? Second question, why is the organization facing or going to face these challenges? Third question, what are the most promising unexploited opportunities for growth? Fourth question, what would need to happen for the organization to exploit the potential of these? And last, powerful question, if you were me, what would you focus attention on? What an amazing learning experience. And what I love about those questions, you're treating each person like an expert on the organization, on its past and its future. Yeah, I'm a big fan of trust building trust through transparency and also rumbling what I'll call in tough conversations. And those tough conversations, if you can't, you know, some of those questions led to me obviously asking more questions. Oh, tell me more about that. Why do you think that is, right? The, the what, when, why. By moving through those conversations, the trust that was built almost immediately and trust gets results, right? Especially when you're going through change management. You know, you'd ask, I'm coming into this organization, we have huge potential and there will be changes. It won't be the same as, you know, I'm a different leader than the past leader. That's one change, right? And that just is what it is, no matter what leader you are. So to be able to have that human connection, but also ask some very specific questions that trust will ultimately lead to results. Yeah, and it's just what a, a, a wonderful way. I mean, would you say that, you know, I think a lot of new CEOs, they come in, you know, and uh, they're under all this pressure and they say, I don't have time for that. Um, but but I think uh, I can't imagine a better way to get your arms around the organization and uh, and to start understanding the culture and leading the culture by learning. I mean, you're, you're taking charge by learning. Yes, it was a very purposeful. I mean, again, I called I literally called it a listening tour because my job was to listen more than I talked um, and I've taken those same questions and pivoted, you know, my, my next 60, 90 days, I actually started going external into the market. Past board members, uh, I've been really embraced by this community who loves their Minnesota company, Caring Bridge. 
you know, leaders from across different healthcare uh, systems, I've asked those same questions and it's, it's served me well because the themes that I'm getting, and that's the important, I think the consistency of the questions you ask, because I could have set up 30, 45 minutes and just had a conversation. I think the importance of the consistency of those questions is what helped me learn and lead very quickly. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, just the nature of how you're taking charge through inquiry, through curiosity, through showing respect uh, for what other people uh, might know uh, or might think. Um, it, it, it sends such a powerful message. And it also is such a, I mean, there's a little bit of sleight of hand, right, involved. Um, and but But it also means that whenever you uh, say, hey, here's what we're learning and here's what we're going to do next. Uh, it's not coming from, you know, oh, hey, so I've, I've been sitting alone in my office and I thought up this great idea, right? But it's no, you are becoming the repository and the common denominator of all of this input. So you just, you, you're making yourself powerful through a through humility and respectful curiosity it's just it's it's genius thank you and i, I think the important piece too you, you hit on it you know sleight of hand but maybe said differently a importantly what was my follow-up after those conversations because you know you're coming in new you're the ceo your words carry weight and so the importance of me then getting in front of not only my leadership team but then the entire organization and the board with a summary. And I had to summarize it. You can imagine how many things I heard and different ideas. And so I summarized it into, here's the opportunities. And I only did three. And they were those were actually easy to find, interestingly enough, because of how, again, the themes were very clear coming out of that. And then I, I also, so I did three opportunities and three strengths of the organization, and then three ideas that I heard, because there was consistency also in ideas, which is important when you're pivoting to a high growth, um, new strategy, I'll call it CaringBridge 2.0 vision, which is what are the, there's not a lack of ideas, right? The, the, I, what I've been telling the team is it's, it's not a, about more ideation. It's about which pony are we going to pick because they're all good. They're all thoroughbreds. But we've got to be really thoughtful about what we believe will take CaringBridge to the next level to serve more people. Yeah, because people, you know, I think sometimes it's it's lost on folks that a nonprofit needs to be bringing in revenue, right? A nonprofit so that, that uh, revenue doesn't result in profits that inure to the benefit of any individual. Uh, but you still got to have money in order to uh, take action on your on your mission. I will tell you, coming into CaringBridge, I have never felt more responsible for how we spend our donations, really, because as a nonprofit, I've, I feel more responsible than I ever have at any for-profit company. Because we are literally, an interesting fact about CaringBridge, 90% of our revenue comes from small donations, $50, an average of $50. If you look at other nonprofits, the majority of their funding comes from large gifts, uh, foundations, grants. I'm talking one million plus. Uh, so the fact that we have grown, again, this is that legacy, that great legacy I talk about building on these small donations. But I am using literally grandma's social security that she decided to send $50 to CaringBridge to fund a team that furthers our vision in the, in the digital platform. And that's not insignificant it gets me up in the morning and it's very different than working for a for-profit company. 
look, anyone who, even if you're running a, a for-profit company um, and the mission is to sell French fries or whatever, you know, you're the steward of so many constituents, right? But but when it is a nonprofit with the kind of mission that you have, the sense of responsibility is greater. I think when you when you put together this vision of a world where no one goes through a health journey alone and you think about what that could enable, it, again, it, my passion around this is not a lot of people know we're a nonprofit. And we look from the outside looking in, a lot of people think we have hundreds of employees and that we're not a nonprofit. And by the way, we are a digital platform. That's not cheap. And so it's a very different nonprofit model that we're working on, but with this phenomenal ability to impact people's lives. So I think the, the biggest shift for me actually is working in a nonprofit. You cannot be scared to ask for money in any capacity because it, it and it's that passion around how does, where does this money go? How many people is it helping? Yeah. What a, what a, uh, what a really cool thing. And so uh, uh, we're going to take a break of, uh, and we'll be back with Tia Newcomer, CEO of Caring Bridge. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, the author of Drive Your Career, Nine High Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success. If you like listening to the indispensables as much as I do, maybe you'll be a fan of my podcast, Be Brave at Work. Each week, I ask my guests about their experiences with bravery at work and ask them to share one to two ideas on things you can do differently to be brave when you need it the most. I've interviewed some fantastic people from around the globe and from all levels of organizations who share some amazing insights, including Peter Bregman, best-selling author and leadership coach, Harvard University professor and thought leader, Amy Edmondson, and Timothy Clark, founder and CEO of The Leader Factor and author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, and many, many more. Please listen and subscribe to Be Brave at Work at BeBraveAtWork.com or listen to our twice-weekly broadcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you are listening now. So we're back with Tia Newcomer, CEO of Caring Bridge. Tia, uh, so what, this, what are this, some of the secrets of your success? I know uh, you talk about being true to yourself and owning your narrative. For you, that's more than a slogan. Integrity to me is everything. And that, I guess there's no bad outcome. A wise mentor of mine, Jeff Krauss, told me that one time. There is no bad outcome. And that includes when you are in a position of leadership and you do not and you're not aligned with the values or the integrity of your own leadership or the board or wherever you're at. One, don't be afraid to say something and stand up for what you believe is the right thing to do. And I think that means into you know, rumbling those tough conversations. I always believe that as leaders, our job is to listen more than we speak, to gather as much information. And I like to do that one on one and then make a decision. And I think the importance and this integrity piece is that if you feel listened to, you may not agree with the leader's choice or path forward, but if you feel listened to and you understand why the decision was made, again, you may not agree, that is powerful leadership. That is what I've learned from many leaders uh, from HP to Revlon to all the way up into my last years um, in the private equity and VC back space. 
So, so let me push you on that because, you know, especially you, you, private equity and, and venture capital, you know, you, you got investors to worry about. Um, and, and sometimes uh, uh, you can get cornered on matters of integrity. So how, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you stay true to yourself when you're being backed into a corner uh, by people who have more power than you do in a situation? It's hard. I'll tell you, it's hard work. I often chant literally or will say in my mind a mantra, be true to you. And that grounds me um, in two things. I, I have to focus on the data too. That will neutralize. If I can focus on the data, even when being backed into a corner, that neutralizes emotion, right? Because it can get emotional and intense if you're not in agreement with where things are going uh, or integrity issues. And so I think coming back to facts and data has helped me to remain calm in those situations. And then I will say, Bruce, um, my mom one time told me I was holding my newborn firstborn and really struggling, like, should I go back to work? And it was a pivotal moment. I just said, I don't know what to do, mom. Should I go back? Should I not? And my mom said, you know what, Tia, you can have it all, just not at the same time. And that was important for me to listen to, because I think there's two things in that. There are always trade-offs. When I went back to work, obviously the trade-off is, you know, I missed some moments with my own children. I have to be honest with those things. I guess that's the other thing when, if you're honest with your choices, honest with those choices, both in business and in personal, that will take you far. And, it, and it's just own those choices. My life support is my husband and not everyone has that. And so I, when I have young leaders or people that look up to me and say, how do you do it? I'm like, well, I do it with trade-offs one. So I want to be really honest with that. And then two, I have a husband that was home two thirds of the time and is now retired. We have to be honest, I think, about some of those trade-offs in life and where we place those bets. You know, no pressure, but if you're not married yet, choose the right person because otherwise it's really going to set you back. I love that, Bruce. It is so, so important. And I would say, you know, that it, let's let's apply that to business. Choose choose the right person that you want to work for or with. I, I have only ignored that one time and it was disastrous. And it was recently in my career. I look back on all of the choices and the jumps that I made, you know, from different industries and different leadership teams. And I always, you know, those people that were taking bets on me and I always leaped, but I leaped because I knew that the leader I respected based on the way they approach things. I ignored uh, last piece of advice. I'll say when you're choosing the right person, whether it's in your personal life or in business, don't ignore the red flags. Don't ignore the red flags. That's huge, right? Because the job looks so good. The position looks so good. The money looks good. The location looks good. There's so much about it that looks good. And yet there's a red flag just hanging there. Sometimes it's somebody you already know who that person is. You've told yourself before, I would never want to work for that person, but you go do it anyway. It never works out. I have talked to thousands of people and we all can laugh and say, oh yeah, that one time, whether it, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the other, uh, ignoring red flags. I had a practice marriage. My husband and I jokingly and affectionately call it my practice marriage right out of college. There were red flags. I ignored them. I was divorced uh, a year later. And the funny part of the story, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Bruce, is literally my dad, who I love dearly. We are getting ready. The doors are opening to the to the church. We're about ready to walk down the aisle. This is my first marriage. We're, we're arm in arm linked. And he pats my arm, looks me in the eye, and he goes, you know, Tia, if you don't want to do this, we will go have a party, have a phenomenal party. It won't matter. But if you don't want to do this, let's go. The car's outside. And then I, I laughed and said, oh, dad, and the doors open. 
boom, I got married. Ignored the red flags. Yeah, including that your dad's like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> my dad, who I respect him, who's been married to my mom for, you know, 45 years. But you can't fix those red flags. They are there. And the, the other piece of advice my mom gave me is those things that annoy you in the first, again, this can apply to a boss or to your significant other, your chosen person. Those things that annoy you in the beginning, in the honeymoon stage, will be exasperated, exponentially more annoying down you know, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, three years from now. And so do not ignore them. If those red flags aren't hanging out in front, uh, how do you find them? I will say slow down to go faster. When I'm interviewing people when or when I was interviewing for this role, it is easy to get caught up in the moment, get caught up in the yes, yes, yes. So I purposely then take a step back and slow down. In interviews, Here's I like to have the first hour interview, right? That's my filter interview. Second interview, next hour, we dive in a little bit more. And I specifically ask questions on what did you specifically do in that what did you own? How did you do it? Asking that, because a lot of times we can talk really great, but to really understand what someone actually does and what they led versus uh, delegated. Uh, and so that's really important. Those nuances take one to two to three hour interviews. And so I, I will typically spend, you know, and that's usually in the office, formal, et cetera. If we get past those three interviews and I feel like, okay, there's tangible quality. You know, I think this person can not only do the job, but that the right fit for the culture and the how is, is right. Part of that too is how do you lead people? And I really ask specific questions around a lot of people think micromanaging is actually what I call leadership 101. And I think I have to test for that because if you think micromanaging is me having a one-on-one -on -one with you every week and I specifically ask you, you know, what priorities you have, what, where can I help and what key decisions are you making? And if you think that's micromanaging, I, I know that that's not going to work for the, for my leadership style. Cause that's just plain managing. And if you, if you're managing a chain of command, you know, if you've got managers who are managing managers who are managing managers and somebody's reporting to you and they're not doing that, then are they just guessing what their people are doing? Or they're just saying, oh, yeah, 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 they'll be fine. Well, then there's no managing going on there. You've done so many great podcasts and books on this, that, and I just cheer every time. So I look for, again, red flags when I'm asking questions. How do you manage people? And a lot of times I'll get, well, I'm not a micromanager. I'm like, say more about that. There's a lot of things I insert into those three one-hour interviews to really get to, okay, this is the right person. Now, here's the slowdown to go faster. That's a lot. Most people do a one-hour interview. Okay, I'm going to pass you on. Good hire. And it causes tons of bad hires, tons of wasted time. The other piece I'll do after that uh, first three interviews is I purposely go to, I'd love to go to dinner or lunch. So you get them in more out of the, let's call it formal process. Uh, one of the best, uh, I forgot who told me this, but watch how people treat wait staff. That also tells you something about respect. So I watch for these things in a social environment. And when people let their guard down, you also get to know them a little bit more. And what, what's their integrity like? Um, so it typically takes four, concentrated four to five hours to really understand that slow down to go faster to find the right people. So, so you have a big shortcut when it comes to reading people, which is spend a good five hours with them. Yeah, because otherwise I'm going to spend. So people are like, wow, that's a, whew, that's intense to you. That's a lot. And I'm again, I've gotten pushback from senior leadership that I've reported into CEOs to just make it. You need to move. The, 
private equity is on our back. You need to hire. And I'm like, I am not going to be responsible for a bad hire because it takes six months to a year, right? To get them out of the system if you can. Meanwhile, they're decimating your culture that you're trying to build up. So the five hours is well worth a potential you know, year long problem. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, you're going to spend a whole bunch of time getting them on board, getting them up to speed. Uh, you're going to want to give them a chance and you're going to want to give them another chance. And while they've only been here for a couple of weeks or then it's a couple of months and, well, you know, we got to give them a chance. We got to give them a chance. Forget all the time, energy and trouble that you invest in this person. But there's also the opportunity cost of you don't have uh, the right person getting on board and up to speed and starting to tackle challenges. Is there a way to read people's integrity? There's a mix of art and science, right? Because there is some gut. I mean, I know I trust my instinct a lot. Observing people, I would say the other shortcut, Bruce, is I do, I personally take the time. And again, this is the, yes, you have to pay. A lot of people put this to recruiters to do, but I will look at the person's network on LinkedIn see how many people I'm connected to. And I will blindly reach out to people that I know and trust and say, can you tell me what is this person like? And you know, try to find those ways to connect with people that have worked with that person and have a you know, 10, 15 minute conversation. So that's another way that I can hear about integrity. And just trying to get true validation, right? And and I'm glad you're saying all this because, you know, so often, you know, what I do is, you know, I try to bring due diligence to the people process. And, uh, and one of the things I do in assessments is I spend a lot of time trying to ask everybody about everybody. And, and, and it's not gossip or gotcha. I just, I want to, I want to get enough perspectives to really learn who's who. And it is immensely time consuming. Uh, but uh, I have not really found shortcuts other than getting a lot of human perspective about each person and then, um, you know, trying to make good uh, well-vetted judgment. So I'm glad um, that you're validating that. I mean, uh, it's so rare that a CEO thinks they have the time to do that. I, I often tell CEOs, well, hey, I'll do that for you. But but when you do it yourself, it's such an incredible expression of respect for others. And, uh, and what an amazing way to build trust and to build those real relationships. Like you now know a bunch of those people. And I think, you know, it is interesting, Bruce, because there is this transition of how much do you delegate down versus do yourself, particularly as you get higher and higher, right? Because you have more responsibility, you're trying to be visionary, future looking, there's a lot. But particularly when you're coming in new at any leadership level, even at CEO, I found myself saying, should I hand this off to someone? And then I think to myself, if I am building a culture and responsible for not only culture and what, what's that saying, a culture eats strategy for lunch, right? I'm great at strategy. But if you don't have the culture to back it up, and if I'm not the person that's driving that top down, and that's the other thing I've learned in my career is if your culture is not top down, yes, you can make an impact within the organization by doing things differently. But the most powerful is that top down alignment and the attention to creating that team around you. Because once that team's around you that you trust, your results come. Uh, so let me ask you a philosophical question. Does integrity, is that something you're born with or how do you learn that? And can somebody be taught that? Can you teach integrity? Gosh, that's a profound question. Um, where my head went, I'm just going to react. It's learned and it's modeled. So I would say that if you don't have that as your foundation, 
growing up, I think it'd be harder. However, those leaders, teachers, key influences, if you have the, the, someone has to model it and you have to see it. And I think not only do you have to see it, but you have to feel it because you know when you've been treated with integrity, even if it's, I like to call, uh, there's a word I use a lot, wise compassion. And that means you do tough things with compassion. And if you can lead with wise, and you have, when you've been treated with wise compassion in tough situations, whether you've been fired, whether you've had a, uh, you know, you're being corrected for maybe the way you handled something, when you feel that integrity and that use of wise compassion, I think it drives you to, to pay it forward into your own leadership style. So I think you do have to experience it, have it modeled and experience it to, to, to move that forward. What are your thoughts, Bruce? What have you experienced? Yeah, I mean, it's a puzzle. It's something that I've been trying to figure out. The integrity, curiosity, uh, 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 resilience. Are these things that, you know, some people have them and some people don't? Or are they things we can teach people? Uh, and and uh, the United States Armed Forces is a great laboratory for this, where I think um, it has convinced me uh, that a lot of that stuff can be taught. I just don't know if there's a point of no return, like, uh, or, you know, that is to say, are there some people who can't learn it? And then is there a point you get to in your life and career where, yeah, I've already gone down this other road. I'm not going to become curious and, and resilient and um, so a person of, of ethics. I, I, I don't know. It's a puzzle. I, I've been asking everybody this. Can you learn these things? Well, I do. Actually, I would, you just made me think of something. I think regardless, if I think curiosity can be taught. I think integrity can be taught. But your foundation has to be one of learning, meaning you have to want to learn. And the people that I see that change, whether you have come from the worst background and out of that you know, challenging background into uh, serving people, as an example, what I've noticed is it's the people that are constantly wanting to learn can make those leaps. Um, so you, you, you've mentioned a, a number of times rumbling in tough conversations. I have a feeling that's the book you're writing, but tell me more about that. So as a you, you said a word to vulnerability, and I think that's important because it goes hand in hand with these rumbling and tough conversations. And I think if I think about you know my own, I have two teenage daughters, and I think about the world there, and there's a lot of vulnerability in their exchanges. And I think the way that we grew up was much less, particularly if you're in business, like put on that suit, put on that straight face, don't talk, separate work and home. And I actually think what's powerful about what's happening in the world in the last even two years is that the vulnerability of our lives are intermixed with work, regardless of who you are. If you can show that at any level of the organization, this is a careful balance. And I'm, I'm even adjusting my own approach as the CEO, but I need to show people I am human. I have things that go on in my life. And that vulnerability is what drives rumbling and tough conversations. Rumbling and tough conversations, I'll give you an example. So teams sitting around the table, leadership team, right? We are fundamentally, there's a new CEO. I'm asking for different accountabilities, a different approach to how we measure things. And what was happening is conversations were happening outside of the room, not directly to me. And so I noted this and the vulnerable piece of me came in and said, here's what I'm noticing. How, if I don't hear directly from you all, one, you may be interpreting my ass in a different way. Two, this must be hard. I'm not like the previous CEO. 
that's neither good or bad. I'm just different. Let's talk about that. And so being vulnerable to ask the questions and the other, one of my other favorite questions is what can I do better? That's vulnerable, right? Especially as a CEO, what can I do better? And I have to allow people at any leadership position to answer that question, not be defensive. And I may hear things I don't like. I may not agree with them, but allowing that safe space to have those conversations moves teams forward, connects them. It also holds teams accountable. I think that's important too. You have to be able to hold each other accountable, ask questions, leave the room aligned and not have the conversation after the conversation. That's probably my biggest pet peeve. We are in a room, we're in a meeting, we're, this is a decision-making meeting, we have the facts on the table. And if that rumbling, if you can't rumble in that tough conversation in that moment, so we get it out on the table and so we make the right decision, but you leave the room and have a side conversation and we want to revisit, that's one of my biggest pet peeves. So rumbling in tough conversations is keeping the conversation in the room respectfully with each other or in those one-on-one conversations. So keeping the, keeping the conversation in the room at the table uh, in the moment, rather than going and finding somebody who, who already agreed with you or who's going to agree with you uh, or who has the same uh, objection as you and whispering about it outside and confirming for each other that there was something wrong there. Or there wasn't something, there was something not quite right there but then not putting it on the table so that it can be tested um, in the committee of the whole. So it can be tested with the people who have authority and who are going to be making those decisions. And I think you're right. There's, there's a vulnerability in calling that out. Uh, and, and, and there's a vulnerability in calling that out partly because it's often the case that if they didn't say it at the table, they didn't say it at the table because they thought it might be something you didn't want to hear. I actually, I've got a, I've got a great example that will bring this to life. I wanted to kill two, right? So I'm what hundred days in, I'm looking at what we're spending money on. I wanted to kill two projects for what I thought were good reasons. I went about it first having one-on-one conversations with each of my leadership, senior leadership team. And I said, here's what I'm thinking. This is not a directive. And I have to say that a lot. This is not a directive. I'm, I'm asking questions. Here's what I'm thinking. I had one-on-ones with each and then we got in a room and I, and what was great is we whiteboarded because I had heard different things, agreement, non-agreement, different points of view. And then we all came into one room and we had the, I said, okay, I've had one-on-ones with each of you. This is the decision I'd like to make. Here are the things I've heard from each of you and put those on the table. And we actually had a great conversation that actually pivoted my, what I thought was going to be the direction. It pivoted my direction because there were other unintended consequences that I had not thought about. If my team haven't been, hadn't been brave enough to tell me those and, and talk and put those on the table, I may have made a really bad decision for the organization because no one said anything. And, and, and it's requiring other people to be vulnerable, to question the new leader and say, well, are you sure that's a good idea? Rather than whispering outside saying, doesn't she realize what's going to happen? Why not say that at the table? You may still hear that unintended consequence that you hadn't thought about. And you still may make the decision. But again, that going back to the beginning of our conversation, if everyone feels heard and they know that you have all the facts on the table from them and you make a decision while they may not agree, they understand why you made the decision and that you understand the consequences. And now you have a plan to address unintended consequences might happen. And uh, okay, so in our last couple of minutes, do you have a secret to a secret of your success that you want to share? Another secret of your success? The future is yours to create. Don't forget that. Pay attention to those people who are giving you the chance and, and make the leap. 
Um, and I'll, I'll close with that one line, there's no bad outcome. There is no bad outcome. You can always get out, get in. And I think if you can approach your decisions with that, you know, the future is yours to create. It's very powerful. We all have choices every single minute, every single day. So own it. It's yours. The future is yours to create. Tia Newcomer, CEO of Caring Bridge. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. In our next episode, I'll talk with Katrina Williams, head of sales and ITS capability for the technology giant CDW. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.